This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Tonight, I wanted to start with a question that one of you sent me. And, you know, in general, I just want to really uh, thank you um, for your questions, for your emails. I've said before uh, how much I love these meetings. And, you know, part of the reason is, uh, of course, that I enjoy talking about the Dharma, but um, really the, the crux of it is um, the, the meeting of minds. Uh, you know, kind of sharing in the wonder and the mystery that is this human life and the challenge of it, you know, that I feel demands um, a level of, of seeing that is sometimes daunting, but necessary. And so, you know, to me, this is really the willingness to go into something deeply, deliberately, not assuming that we know not, not being content to just stay you know, on the surface of things and, and be satisfied with what we haven't carefully examined. And so your, your emails, your questions, usually after these meetings, also give me a chance to uh, reflect further. So I really appreciate them. And so one of you asked uh, why I was doing a discussion after the talk. Um, at least at the monastery in the mountains of every sort, we say that the Dharma talks are dark to the mind, but radiant to the heart. And it's uh, an expression that my teacher loved, and he borrowed it from Evelyn Underhill. He never really um, uh, credited her, unfortunately, but it is her expression. Um, Evelyn Underhill, the 19th century author of mysticism. And she was really referring to what I call the realm of the real, the, the ground of being, Paul Tillich called it. And it's that which you can't grasp intellectually, but you can only realize, right, with your whole being. And I think it's a, it's a skill, it's a great skill to speak from that place, you know, to be able to communicate with words what is, what is necessarily limited, uh, words that are necessarily limited, the truth, to communicate the truth of the ineffable. And I don't particularly feel I do that, you know, to, to be honest. I mean, I speak of what I see, and sometimes I try to speak of what I don't see, you know, to use language and inquiry to uncover, you know, what I have not yet seen, what I have not yet realized. But I don't think that my talks are particularly dark to the mind. I also don't think we have to leave the mind out either. You know, these, these truths really do speak to the heart mind. You know, they speak to the whole person that we are. And in the, at the monastery, we would say it's a Buddha speaking to a Buddha, speaking to that part of you that is already awake. And if this is, the character and the purpose, the tone of a Dharma talk, then why do I want to mar it with intellectual 
discussion. And, you know, at first there's a, a practical and, and somewhat selfish reason. You know, talking to a Zen crowd is challenging in the best of circumstances. We're, we're trained to sit still, you know, to, to really practice the zazen of listening. And I'll tell you that for a speaker, that is the pits because you get no feedback and you have no idea if your words are reaching people or at what, what level. Although, you know, sometimes it's obvious if you're not reaching them. I've told a story before that I was at the at Fire Lotus Temple not long ago and um, I could feel I didn't have my audience. It was the talk I hadn't thought it through well, I hadn't constructed it well. And finally, uh, all the way in the back, a woman fell off her chair. She was falling asleep <laughs> and I was mort mortified. Um, and so, you know, it is my job to speak in such a way that engages you. But now, you know, you add a screen and the challenge doubles. I can't hear you right now, right? And I get only fragmented visual cues from a couple dozen tiny images. And so I could be speaking about the most profound aspect of the Dharma, and you could be scrolling through your Facebook feed. You could be reading the New York Times. And I mean, it's, this is just the challenge that we are dealing with, and I'll take it as opposed to not being able to, to interact with you. But um, having dialogue helps. Having back and forth helps. It makes me feel a little less like I'm speaking into a void. But there's also something else, and ultimately is really what's, what's important. You know, I keep wanting to see what happens when the, the sharing, the sharing of wisdom is less vertical than horizontal, right? When it's not me expounding the Dharma and you receiving it, but us really looking and listening and questioning together. And one of you said to me, you know, rethinking teaching as practice, which I would say is both learning to teach teaching to learn and learning to learn. And hopefully that's not just me, that it's you as well, right? So I want to be able to, to take a form, a teaching tool and wonder, does this free or does it bind? You know, does it, does it oppress or does it liberate, right? When is silence a refuge? When is it a cage? When is structure necessary? When is it just a habit? And I feel that to do this well, we need all of us. I mean, I need your experience. I need your history. I need your particular embodiment and the way that it uh, intersects with, with the Dharma. And so, you know, for example, one of you gave me uh, feedback on the uh, Le Guin story that I told um, last week, she names them, and you were really expressing your hurt at being given again, you know, the image of the uncaring man, you know, the man that's too busy, he's too self-involved to engage. And you acknowledge that the stereotype 
exists for a reason, that the image is there for a reason. And you also voiced your pain because that's not how you want to be seen, it's not how, how you want to live. And so, you know, I took that in, I, I heard you. And, um, you know, it's not when, when, a, when an image, when a metaphor, when a story is not, is saying in some way, you can't come in, you know, this, this, this teaching is not for you, then um, it's not skillful, it's not helpful. You know, so, so um, you know, I'll, for myself, I'll rethink, you know, how I tell that story, you know, from now on, because stories have power, and who tells them has power, and how we tell them has power. And so if a teaching excludes anyone, if it negates or ignores your experience, your experience, I've failed. And it is not the Dharma. You see? And so, you know, this isn't about pleasing everyone either, right? About creating a way of practice that fulfills our every wish, because that's impossible and not particularly desirable, given that we don't always want what sets us free. And it's not about political correctness either, is the most abstract term. I've ever heard, or about having all of us agree. It is really about, for me, speaking truth to the best of our ability, speaking to reality. And it's about you and me as people, you and me as human beings, by being kind to one another, having respect for the being that we each are. And so I've said this many times before, it's not even that we have to like each other as we travel this path together, but we can do our best to regard one another, to care, right? Because this is really ultimately what the Dharma is teaching us. Something, someone is. And they're the same as me, and they're not the same as me. And so knowing both truths, how do I treat them? And, and really, that's what I'm interested, most interested in. And so really, ultimately, <clears throat> you know, I want to look at the forms that I've uh, received and ask again, you know, is this working? How is it working? You know, and this um, does not mean in any way that I'm rejecting uh, what I've received. You know, I will never be able to repay what I've been given. And I'm not particularly interested in reinventing the wheel or forging my own path or, or creating my own brand. I'm interested in seeing and in understands me 
in, in understanding what prevents me from doing this. So I'm interested in dismantling um, assumptions and biases and opinions that get in the way of my and your liberation. Because there is so much I don't see, but I want to. And so really, again, practically speaking, I mean, sometimes I'll give a talk and if there's time afterwards for questions, we'll do that. And if there isn't, we won't. Um, I thought other times I will just do a, a, a mondo. Yeah, I'll just uh, present a, a, a teaching and we'll have a, a discussion and we'll see, right? We'll find out together. And so, you know, in, in, in that spirit, I recently came across the notes from, for my first talk, the first talk I gave, my, my senior's talk, my Shuso talk, which I gave in 2006. And once again, it, it, uh, it just confirmed, you know, my, um, my inclination, my, my interest in seeing and in blindness because I chose uh, a koan from the True Dharma Eye um, in which the, the teacher, Fayan, is essentially, he's doing work practice. And, you know, Fayan, I've always loved him because um, his way of language was very, very simple, very direct. And he would often just uh, repeat what the student had said to him in, as, a, as his answer, as his teaching. And he often, very often wouldn't, uh, um, offer any explanation. And so in one in, in interaction, you know, there's a, one of the, the students is saying, you know, I've been here at this monastery, but I, I don't really ask any questions because I've seen it, you know, I've gotten it. And um, I thought it was uh, timely that once again, one of you sent me an article that Tricycle had put out about asking questions when you're working with a teacher and how to ask questions. And their advice I thought was, was good. And again, it was simple. It was basically get out of your own way. Don't try to impress them. Don't try to prove anything. Simply be yourself and um, uh, encourage yourself to move just beyond the edge of what is comfortable. Right? So what is it that, that is most pressing in that moment? What is it that you most need to know and bring that? But here the, 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 the student is saying, you know, I don't, I don't really, I've, I've gotten it. I, I didn't want to, to uh, deceive you. And he says, you know, when my teachers asked me, what is the self? I said, it's the fire God seeking fire. And Fayan, who's teaching him, says, well, you know, those are good words, but you didn't really understand them. And so the student launches into an explanation. Well, you know, the fire god belongs to fire. So fire seeking fire is like the self seeking the self. And Fayan is like, ah, yeah, no, sorry. 
And so he's very upset and he leaves in a huff, the, the student. And he's walking down the road and then he stops and he reconsiders, he thinks, well, you know, about um, Fayan is the teacher of 500 students. So maybe, maybe he knows what he's talking about. And so he comes back and he apologizes. And Fayan says, well, you ask me. And the student says, well, what is the self? And Fayan says, the fire god seeks fire. And then the student realizes himself. And think of, you know, so that we're, we're taking this out of ancient China. Think about how many times in your life you've gone through exactly this. Your teacher says something, your therapist, your partner, and they say it, and they say it, and they say it, and you hear it. You hear it for years, perhaps. And then one day you hear it, you really hear it. It goes in. And have you ever wondered why? Why then? Why in that moment? Why not before? Like what needs to happen for that to take place? To be ready, to be open, to see, to hear. Can you make that happen? Right? What is the work that we need to do? But that was not the koan that I actually spoke on. <laughs> um, the, the koan that I spoke on, Fayan and another student, they're essentially doing work practice together. They're working and they go and, and, and they're looking at the monastery well and it's clogged with sand. And so Fayan points to it and he says, you know, when the eye of the spring is obstructed, sand is in the way. And then he says, when the eye of the way is obstructed, what is in the way? And the student can't answer. He doesn't say anything. And so Fayan answers for him. She says, the I is in the way. What is that? When the I of the way is obstructed, what is in the way? The I is in the way. What is in the way when we don't see? And again, what helps to clear the way for seeing, for living? Because this is really what this, this koan is pointing to. It's actually what all koans are pointing to. And so briefly, let me actually just say something about koans. I think most of you are familiar with them, but you know, I actually normally don't give talks on koans, not the formal talks that um, are a feature of, of Zen. I usually include them really more as stories, as teaching stories. However, I, I do, at least in my mind, acknowledge that their power lies in their directness, in the kind of asking that they demand of me. So koans are in fact dark to the mind, to the intellectual mind, at least in part. Because sometimes you need, you need to have a, the context, you need a, a little bit of the language, the imagery. So it's not that you don't engage the intellect at all, but you can't figure out the situation, the question with a rational mind. And so in this way, they are 
forcing you, they are demanding, they are asking that you ask a question with your whole being. And we, we touched on this before a few weeks ago. You know, what does it mean to ask a question with your whole being, every cell in your body, right? Every ounce of you, every thought in your mind is engaged, is asking, which is supremely useful, I find, when a life koan presents itself to you, a diagnosis, a death, financial stress, political instability. And you wonder, what do I do? How do I act? And my suggestion would be, get quiet first. Get very, very quiet and then ask. Then get very quiet again and listen. Because our wisdom never fails. It is not wrong. I mean, we often misinterpret it. You know, our, our brain moves so fast and the rational mind moves so fast that we, we're often ahead of ourselves. Wisdom, and what I would call the wisdom of your body, of your being, never fails. Not if it's coming from the realm of the real. And when it does, you know. You know with a knowing that is before words. And despite what I said last week about the, the, the need to unname, the need to break down you know, the barriers, to, to, to take off the labels, it's also important, necessary, critical even, to do the opposite, to name what we see, what we name, to, to name what we um, uh, see returning, for lack of a better word, for lack of a better way of saying it, returning from that place, from the realm of the real. And so first we move into stillness and unname what has never been singular or separate. And then we return, return to activity and name what needs to be named. You know, this is poverty. This is racism. This is greed. This is um, courage. This is kindness. This is love. And so that really comes from the place that recognizes what is needed you know, to, to, to live in accord with the way things are. And when I, when I tie that back to seeing Well, let me, let me return to that. Because I've, I've, I've told this story to some of you, but you know, many years ago, um, I was at the monastery and uh, Hogan Sensei, fellow teacher and 
good friend, longtime friend, was uh, giving somebody advice. And as they were leaving, I happened to hear the last bit of the conversation. And I asked him exactly what I brought up before. I said, Hogan, aren't you tired of saying the same thing like over and over again? And he just looked at me and he said, Suisse, you just have to love them. And, you know, it was in my 20s at the time, so I completely brushed it off. And I thought, that is naive, that is too soft, and hardly, hardly adequate to meet the cries of the world, you know, to meet the conflict that I see. I mean, you can't love a tyrant, a rapist, a demagogue. You can love people who show through blatant word and action that they don't care. Or can you? What does it mean to love the way that he was um, encouraging me to? What does it mean to care, not despite, but because of our and their limitations? Why is it that this is what the mystics constantly return to? What is it that they see? And the fact is, you know, the word, the word uh, love doesn't appear in the sutras, not by itself. It appears as maitri or metta, loving kindness. I don't know the reason, perhaps so it's not confused with a more uh, limited version of love that most of us know. Because remember that as the first of the four immeasurables, loving kindness is immeasurable. And so it, it knows no bounds. It does not choose. It is not dependent, conditioned. And so sure, from the outside, it may seem daunting to cultivate this kind of love, but that's only from the outside, it's only when we step back and we think about it. And whenever I wonder for myself, you know, what, what this is, I'm always taken back to another uh, very pivotal moment in my practice life, which is what I was about to, to bring up before. And that's the first time that I had face-to-face -face teaching. Uh, with now Shugen Roshi. At the time, he was just beginning to, to train as a teacher. And the best way that I have to describe it, I have no idea what he said. I mumbled something about being very attracted to the monastic life. And he said something, I have no idea what. And all I remember are his eyes, is his gaze on me. And as I left the room, I remember thinking to myself, I have never been seen before until this moment. And many years later, I thought, this is how we bring each other into being. This is what we can do for one another. He had never met me before. And probably by the next day, he had completely forgotten who I was. Right? And so it, it, didn't, it wasn't personal. 
it wasn't uh, sentimental love in any way. It was something, and you know, he probably wouldn't have called it love himself at the time. It was it was a, a complete kind of regard. I, I felt seen in my entire being, and I thought, can I do that for another? Is this something that I can do that I can offer? And I've been trying ever since, and failing ever since, and trying ever since. You know, and ultimately, we don't have to be heroic. We don't have to beat ourselves up when we don't feel like doing the work, you know, where we just want to space out, binge on Netflix, you know, where we don't want to have to care because we already feel so overwhelmed, you know, dealing with this. How am I going to deal with all this? You remember that, that um, famous Mary Oliver poem, you know, Wild Geese? You know, she says, you don't have to walk on on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. What does this body love? This body in this body. And so as the years go by, I, I wonder more and more whether it's not ignorance that is the prime mover in Buddhism. Because you know ignorance is the, the driver that keeps the cycle of samsara turning. But what if the prime mover is actually love? I mean, ignorance is real, for sure. But what if when we go to the realm of the real, and we return, we realize, we know that the only true response is love. And I wish, this is where I wish I could say this in some way that would really mean what I say. Because these words are so... Limited, so limited. But if you feel, even for a moment, what this is, then you know. Then you know why mystics for hundreds, thousands of years have been struggling to express exactly this. Against reason, even. And so after 70 decades of practice, something like that. The Dalai Lama says, my religion is simple. My religion is kindness. Could it be that he knows what he's talking about? And so to end, uh, let me read you this fragment. It's from um, Ada Limon's we are surprised, also a poem. Miracles are all around. We're not so much homeless as we are home free, penny poor, but plenty lucky for love and leaves that keep breaking the fall. Here it is. 
the new way of living with the world inside of us so we cannot lose it and we cannot be lost. You and me are us and them and it and sky. It's hard to believe we didn't know that before. It's hard to believe we were so hollowed out, so drained, only so we could shine a little harder when the light finally came. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.